0: I always knew that I should raise more than I want. I should raise as and when I can and raise when people are willing to invest in you. And that's exactly what I did. I raised 30 million in the last four years.
1: No one appreciates an impatient woman more than I do. And Sandhya Sriram is certainly one. The stem cell scientist wanted to put her knowledge to use developing cultivated seafood, but no one was doing that yet in Singapore. So naturally, years ago, she decided to take matters in her own hands to leverage this multi-billion opportunity to create lab-grown crustacean meat. She registered her company Shop Meats at 3 a.m. in August 2018 and today is the world's first cultivated shellfish meat company and Southeast Asia's first cultivated seafood and meat company. The startup's mission is to bring delicious, sustainable and healthy seafood to our table using cellular agriculture technology to grow meat from stem cells instead of slaughtering animals. Since the inception in 2018, they have grown from two to over 50 employees today, made a strategic acquisition themselves, raised over $30 million from brands like Y Combinator to Korean conglomerate CJ's food arm. You don't want to miss it. Welcome to Billion Dollar Moves, the show for the top founders, funders, and execs making billion-dollar moves that are shaping our future. From the growing pains of a unicorn journey to IPO, the question of impact, purpose, and returns, we go real deep in the world of venture and business. I'm your host, Sarah Chen Spellings. Before we hop in here, I have a quick favor to ask you smash that follow button wherever you're tuning in from. This way, you'd be the first to know of new episodes that drop. And of course, please tell your friends so we can amplify more stories built on Grit in the US and Asia venture ecosystem, and that we can all keep making billion-dollar moves together. Now let's get started. All right, Sandhya. Well, it's such a pleasure to see you again. I was tasting your product in Singapore not too long ago. So the question is, where is the product right now?
0: Thanks, Sarah. Um, It's great to be here. The product is, let's say, about a year away from its commercial launch, um, or about 18 months away. Um, So we are a novel food product. Uh, What you're referring to is cultivated shrimp, crab, or lobster. So we make seafood using stem cells so that you don't have to um, go into the oceans or build a farm and then kill animals. Um, Yeah, so we are in the development phase, scale-up phase, and we're looking into commercialization and uh, since this is a new product, we do need to get regulatory approval. So we'll wait for that. And hopefully by the mid of next year, we should be able to launch it commercially.
1: Middle of next year. Well, we are holding on with bated breath. But, you know, I dive right into it to to check in on the progress of everything as I like to do. But let's take a step back. As you know, true Billion Dollar Moves fashion. Who is Sandhya? And what are, you know, if you could say it in, I guess, in five minutes, what would you say are your crucible moments to bring you to be doing the work that you're doing today?
0: Yeah, so I think as far as I know, from the time I know that I'm existing on this earth, I always felt that the environment, the animals and human beings need to coexist. And this is sort of our world. So I started off with the thought that I wanted to become a doctor, you know, a medical doctor, because I wanted to understand how the human body works, how the animal body works, and why we get diseases and why we fall sick. And this started off very early in my life because my dad was pretty ill when I was pretty young as well. And then I couldn't understand why this was happening to my dad. Unfortunately, I lost him when I was 15 and that sort mm-hmm. of led into a full trajectory of going into why and why don't human bodies work 100% all of the time, what's happening to it? So I went into the path of science and research, did a did a, a bachelor's, master's and then a PhD and then got totally obsessed with One particular part of biology, which is called stem cells. And that is sort of the base cell of any animal, plant, or human being. And really, I use the word obsessed because I can't think of anything else other than stem cells. Um, That led me into the trajectory of eventually becoming an entrepreneur, running a company uh, that makes food using stem cells so that we can save the environment, the animals, and eventually human health with nutrition and so on. So, those are the things that culminated into what I do today um not to sugarcoat it but you know my life has been pretty up and down uh, more downs than ups per se and that has made me the resilient strong person that i am to sort of get to the point where i can sort of ideate and visualize the end goal and sort of work towards it as hard as i can um also being an entrepreneur just didn't just happen overnight i was trained to be a scientist i was trained to work in a university or a big biotech company where you get a steady paycheck. You know, um, you're probably the boss, but you're a boss of a small team of three to four people. You're not the boss of a company per se. Uh, but 2014, you know, out of a whim, I was so bored with scientific research because I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel. Because all we were doing was doing a lot of scientific research, but all we were doing was publishing papers. Nothing came out as a product there. And I'm a very impatient, over person From day one. So I said, okay, I want to do something on my own, but I didn't have the courage to start up my own company at that point. So on the side, I started an entrepreneurship sort of a gig uh, called biotech in Asia, which was a science news website. And why I bring this up is that was my entry into the world of entrepreneurship investors. How do you raise money? How do you run a company? How do you grow month on month? You know, how do you become profitable and so on? But also there was a lot of self-discovery through those three years of running that company Mm. where I realized I do have an entrepreneurship side to me and I actually like it. I love it and I can't actually let it go. So finally in 2018, that company failed. Unfortunately, we couldn't scale. But then I became confident to start another company that was full-time my gig and that is Shiok Means in 2018.
1: Yeah, and of course this started with a hamburger. And a professor in Netherlands, can you tell us about this and what really um, was, I think, the trigger point for you to say, hmm, this is the exact angle that I want to approach the business with?
0: Yeah. So again, this ties back into my first venture, because as I was running the science news website, I came across this news article that said there's this professor in the Netherlands that has made a burger using stem cells, but super intrigued, went into the rabbit hole of like looking into this technology, reading about it. Not much was known. I mean, that was the first time somebody had shown it, ended up sort of speaking to him and his team. And there were a few other companies cropping up in the US using the same technology, went ahead and interviewed them, featured them on the website. And at the back of my head, it was always there that I wanted to be part of this revolution as we move forward. Hmm. I've been a vegetarian all my life due to personal choice, ethical reasons. I have tasted meat when I was a teenager. Never really enjoyed it, felt always guilty about it. But then I married a guy who loves meat. I have a son who (laughs) likes meat. I see meat all around me. When I moved to Singapore, you know, it was an explosion of meat and seafood dishes in front of me coming from India. And it was just that I realized humans need meat and seafood. And it's not going to be possible to change everybody to become vegan and vegetarian. And the growing population means growing demand. So how can I put my love for stem cells, my love for environment, animals, and food together? I think we all love to eat. I love to eat as well and explore and see what's out there. I think I just put all of that together, studied the whole industry for a good four years, made friends with the other company owners, made friends with their investors, got into that circle, that ecosystem as much as I could. And in 2018, when I you know, spoke to a couple of them in the industry and I said, I wanted to do something, they said, go ahead, this is the time, you should go for it. And I think that boosted my confidence. And in fact, the first few checks by were written by those people, you know, that believe mm-hmm. that I had the background knowledge, I had the education, I had some sort of an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial spirit in me, and let's support her to sort of take this forward.
1: Yeah. And, you know, it's uh, funny that a vegetarian has chosen to go down the path of Crustaceans, but of course it is a multi-billion industry. Tell us more about why you chose uh, Crustaceans as your first target market.
0: I think I'll just put it in three simple points. First was, started the company in Singapore in Asia. First thing we looked at was what is the most consumed protein in this part of the world? where 65% of the world's population lives and has the most, the two most populated countries in the world, which is China and India, where the growth and the demand and supply of seafood is only going up every year. And that came down to seafood. Among seafood, it was shellfish. Among shellfish, it was shrimp. So that caught our eye. Second was nobody else was doing it. So as an entrepreneur, you want to be unique. You want to have a USP. You want to have something that nobody else is doing. Third was that nobody else was doing led us to the fact that we could have an upper hand on the ip and the patent that's very important for a deep tech company like ours where you know you don't see a product for the first 5 to 7 years your assets are your knowledge your know how your technology your process so these were sort of the three main reasons and when we told sort of a couple of people that we were doing seafood everybody got super excited because seafood is a great source of nutrition but also is an industry that's tainted with a lot of problems
1: Now hold that thought. Finding a service solution that helps you keep customers happy can feel impossible. Like trying to remember the name of that guy you literally just met at a networking event. HubSpot's all-new service hub can help with their service solution part at least. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform with an AI code help desk and chatbot to help you handle your frontline tickets so you can scale support and drive retention and revenue. We love the sound of those things. Visit hubspot.com slash service to learn more. Yeah, and, and speaking of being tainted with a lot of problems, you're actually bringing in essence, a a technology that's highly expensive and niche from the biopharmaceutical industry and trying to bring scale to this business called food that we consume in the masses. How are you going to do that exactly?
0: I think two good analogies to that or examples is one is the smartphone that we have in our hand today. And second is the electric car that's becoming more and more popular and more and more available now in different brands. Who would have thought maybe even 20 years back that we couldn't live without a smartphone or we could do everything in a smartphone, everything from speaking to working to anything, right? And at the same time, an electric car, I mean, we used to use cars that ran on, I don't know, diesel to petrol to coal to everything that's possible in the past. And I think that's where the innovation comes in for food as well. I think nobody thought meat and seafood can be made from stem cells, right? You, you think meat and seafood, you think of an animal, you eventually think of a slaughterhouse, you get out the meat from an animal and you consume it. Um, I think for us, yes, it's, it's a, I think first thing first, everybody needs to know that this industry is less than a decade old. It's about eight Mm -hmm. years old. The first burger was made in 2014. The first company, you know, official company startup that was set up in this industry was set up in 2015. We were set up in 2018 around the world. We are about hundred ish companies now. But there's only one company that has commercialized till now. So it is a technology, like you said, very niche, very expensive from the biomedical healthcare industry, put into a very commoditized, very mass produced sort of an industry called food. All we need is a bit of time. It's not that can we do it? It's just when can we do it? We need a good decade or so to get to that mass production scale that we're talking about. In fact, just as of yesterday, I shared an article on my LinkedIn that spoke about how this can reach mass scale. There's another company that has done an extensive study into this and proven that it can be done mass scale. So it's about that time to get there. I don't think it's like I said, it's not can we do it? It's only when can we do it? And then it's just going to take another decade to get there. For now, it's a premium product. It's, It's small quantities. But it's a start.
1: Yeah. And so it's a start and you have a couple of bioreactors that I visited uh, that make this happen. Can you share with our audience a little bit in terms of the technology and I guess uh, to the extent that you can share the secret sauce of what will make shock meats truly um, the unique product in the market?
0: For sure. Yeah. So, Sarah, if you take a piece of meat, let's take shrimp for now. So if you de it, de-vein it, The meat inside that we generally consume is just 100% muscle, muscle and muscle tissue, basically. And muscle tissue in an animal is made from muscle stem cells, which is sort of the cell zero, seed cell. So imagine growing a plant in a greenhouse in a very controlled environment where you seed the plant seed and then you provide the water, the nutrients, the sunlight, the temperature, the humidity, all of it is controlled. Similarly, equate that into an animal cell. So we take these stem cells Stem cells have this amazing capacity to keep growing outside of the animal's body. And when you freeze down the stem cells, they don't die. When you put them in the right temperature, they start growing. So it's amazing how these these stem cells sort of go between temperatures. And so you use this, you exploit this um, ability of these stem cells, and you make something called a stem cell bank, much like a reservoir of trillions of stem cells frozen down. So it's like a starter culture for your yogurt and sourdough, or for seeds for plants, for example. So you take these stem cells, you put them in a liquid broth called a media, which is made up of plants in our case, much like a nutrient protein shake for the cells for them to like grow and thrive and survive. And this mixture of the slurry of this liquid and the cells are put into a large stainless steel tank called a bioreactor. It's just a fancy name for a very controlled chamber that is sterile, where you can control the temperature, the humidity, the mixing, think of it like a large tank where you're making soup inside of it. So it has a stirrer inside. It can adjust everything automatically by tubes that go inside inside of it. So in a brewery, you would have seen these large tanks, but instead of beer in our case, it's shrimp cells and shrimp broth inside of it. And then in about four to six weeks, what you get is minced shrimp meat at this point from our case, but we are working on the structured one as well. So in the next couple of years, you will see a structured product. And then in our case, actually, we found out that the at the end of the process, the broth, the liquid part that's left behind, actually has a lot of flavor. And we convert that into a flavoring powder for your shrimp crackers, cup noodles, you know, ramen and all of that. So it's essentially a zero waste process where everything that goes in comes out as products and it takes four to six weeks. So this is sort of the process in simple English as much as I can explain.
1: Yeah, love that. And I've seen it in action and and have been really, really intrigued. I mean, like you said, it's it's close to fermentation. And I think the likening of uh, the yogurt starter is really a good one. So four to six weeks, uh, it's a premium product. And you're looking to sell essentially the minced meat at this point in time and the broth. uh, So you're selling your sawdust and I love that. What is the business model that you're looking at?
0: so yes we are a product company i mean we will sell the product itself to restaurants food service that is the ultimate aim but again this is such a mass production industry and what we are experts is is the technology so we want to be able to license out the technology and whom sh- you know the next question would be who should we license it out to interestingly traditional seafood traditional meat companies Food companies out there are extremely interested in using our technology to incorporate into their current line of production. Where these traditional companies also realize that demand is very high, supply is not able to keep up to that demand. So how do they diversify their production process and distribution process as well? So we have been invested by traditional seafood companies. We work with other food companies that want to license out our technology. Mm. Simple numbers, right? If Shiok Meats has to do this for a multi-billion-dollar industry, it'll probably take us fifty to hundred years to get there because manufacturing has to be set up, billions of dollars that go into it. But if we work with the established MNCs and food companies that are out there, and they license our technology, they can actually take it much faster ahead because they already have the consumer base, they have the distribution strategies. You know, they know how to ha- how to do manufacturing and get to that scale. So we want to provide a plug-in, plug-out manufacturing model for these companies where we go and help them with the stem cells, with the setup, with the manufacturing, but they will help us with the large-scale production, distribution, and so on.
1: Got it. So fascinating that uh, you've already been working with and and you're in bed with essentially the incumbents, which you in some ways seek, seek to disrupt, right? And that's always the fear of novel technologies like yours. What are your thoughts with, you know, all this talk about alternative proteins, climate change, the impact to the fisheries and the farms?
0: I think everybody realizes it, be it the big companies, be it the small companies, the consumers. But at the end of the day, when you walk into a supermarket, you have to buy what you see, right? You can ask for something that you want, but if it's not available, you end up buying something that you may not want or you're not comfortable with, but you're with the hope that you will get what you want in the future. So when we did consumer surveys extensively, people said, you know what, we love meat and seafood. We, yes, we try to reduce it. You know, we don't eat it twice a week or we eat it only once a week or twice a week. But at the end of the day, I love my meat and seafood. And when I walk into a supermarket or a restaurant, I get normal meat and seafood that comes from animals. I would like a different version of it. I have tried plant-based. I would like to try cultivate it, but it's not available in mass scale yet. So I'm hoping that it gets there. So I think the hope of me, the entire industry is right now, let's scale this up. Let's give those choices to consumers such that they walk into a supermarket and they're able to choose between conventional, plant-based, you know, cultivated, and then they can make the informed choice at the end of the day.
1: Yeah. And, you know, as you said, a lot of this takes time. still a nascent industry and, and a lot of the development is very different from many of the startups that we've had on here, where it's marketplaces, it's B2B SaaS, you know, it's easily scalable. And and even now with market conditions, there's been a lot of pressure on startups that are not yet profitable. And you are still in the development phase. How are you thinking about how are you going to sustain, especially in face of the current recessionary pressures?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when I started Shioke, I sort of knew there's this, you know, we always hear about this term called value of death for a startup, right? You always go through that phase where You're in between, like the first phase is amazing where you're able to raise some friends and family angel round of sorts. And then, of course, when you have a product and revenue, you're able to sort of grow from there. But it's that middle point where you're sort of stuck. You still have to develop your product. You still have to prove that it works. You still have to get the consumers. You still have to get into the market. But then that's not the most um, favorable time for investors to put money into you. When I started Shiok Meets, I knew from day one for a good five to seven years, this company is going to have zero revenue. So all of it is working with investor money, be it a grant, be it a private investor, be it impact investment, whatever it is. So that was already set in my mind. And I always knew that you raise every day. You don't stop. You finish a round. You start another round immediately because you need more and more cash. It is an expensive R&D technology. So people are expensive. Scientists are, you know, they don't come in very cheap. I mean, they're all PhDs, masters, so you have to pay them well. I'm in a country like Singapore where everything is quite expensive as well, but R&D is the best, it's the best place to do R&D in, in Asia. So having said all this, I always knew that I should raise more than I want. I should raise as and when I can and raise when people are willing to invest in you. And that's exactly what I did. I raised 30 million in the last four years, only when I, you know, when I needed only about 15 million. I had strategics come in and I raised it at a much higher valuation that I even thought that I would raise it at because there was so much interest. Our team was great. Our technology was good. Investors believed in us and they came in. So that was good. So now when the weather is not so good, we, we can actually survive with the money that we raised a little extra per se in our previous rounds. This was challenged a lot by a lot of investors saying, why are you raising when you don't need money and why why do you want to sell short? And I said, you know what, there'll be a day when I need the money and the market won't be that great because alternative protein went to a big boom in the last five to seven years and everybody was investing into it. But as you can see from 2022, nobody's investing as much. So I'm glad that we raised a lot more money and sadly... I'm seeing the news where two or three alternative protein companies or cultivated meat companies are shutting down in the next quarter. And, you know, it's sad to see that a lot of effort and R&D went into it, but they weren't able to raise money, so they have to shut it down. So I don't want to be in that place, so I made sure that we have enough reserve cash to sort of get there. And that's in my head all the time. And I'm raising always. I'm raising now. I'll be raising always.
1: Always be closing, right? Always be closing. I love that. But, you know, Dr. Sandhya, I will say in everything that you've told me, it's been a very scientific approach, right? You're planning for that rainy day. Rainy day. You're planning ahead. You're keeping reserves and keeping your strategic exposed. I love a lot of that But of course, it is very, very difficult. And, you know, you've also um, actually accepted essentially venture capitalist money. But this, you know, when, as I was frankly talking to you, you know, back in a couple of months ago and looking at your business, uh, this does not stand out as a typical venture capital play. And how are you thinking about this as you're thinking about, you know, investors that you brought in? I mean, the question that I'm getting to is when you're thinking about who you bring into bed with you and how you structure your company. How did you, as the leader at the helm, think about this?
0: Yeah, scientists also have failed experiments, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> That's <laughs> so, a good one, yeah. But I think uh, it's about accepting what, you know, nobody's born as an entrepreneur. I'm learning along the way. I think, you know, I'm a good entrepreneur, good CEO. I don't think I'm the best yet. There's there's a lot more to go. Um, but I think, again, from day one, there, there was a scientific methodology you know, sort of a method to look into this as well. And I knew that this is not a VC play. Um, it's too, of course, even now we're too early for PE. We are probably still too late for BC. We, we still have a couple of years for revenue uh, generation and then profit and, you know, profitability and so on. So from day one, it was about going to, to government grants. It was about um, H&Is, for example, family offices, sustainability and impact funds. And if you see our cap table, we have about 80% of them from that uh, pool of investors. 20%, yes, we have had smaller VCs come in, but VCs that do understand this is patient capital. But let's say I have 10 investors. I do know two of them aren't very happy with what I'm doing or where the company is going or they're always questioning. Um, There have been moments where I'm like, you know, how do I solve this? How do I, you know, sort this? And um, that's sort of the, you know, it's everyday journey of an entrepreneur and a CEO, I guess. And There are days where there are really good ups and then, but there are more days of downs sometimes, but it's about waking up every morning with the spirit and the same vision and the enthusiasm that you have, because when you go into the office and the team looks at you, they're looking at you for inspiration, right? So it's about keeping that smiling face, even though whatever happens the previous night or the previous evening, but it's also about speaking to the right mentors and being open about it. And standing up for yourself, honestly, at the end of the day. So if you have somebody questioning the way you're doing it, at the end of the day, you are the decision maker of the company. Your investors, mentors, advisors, external parties can give you advice. At the end of the day, it's you who are making the decision. But if it was the wrong decision, I stand by it. I will apologize. I will realize I made the wrong decision. And sometimes you have to get people to make the wrong positions. It's okay. It's an experience. Get through it. You learn by it and then you move forward. And
1: what have you learned uh, about yourself as a leader through this journey?
0: I am very resilient. I know that, but I'm also vulnerable. I, I do tend to show my vulnerability, but I feel that's a strength. Um, when I show my vulnerability, I'm saying that, hey, I'm human as well. I'm not this uh, CEO who thinks full of herself and, you know, sort of going out there. Yes, my head is always held up high. That's because I'm confident, but I'm not overconfident. Um, I also realize that I'm not resilient 100% of the time. And sometimes I just need to break down if I need to. And it's not a sense of failure or you know you're weak if you break down. I think it's sort of building yourself up again and seeing what you really stand for, what you can bear with. And what you really can't bear with where you can vocalize and actually tell the other person or the situation, show the situation or the other person that, hey, you know what, what you're doing is not right. And this is not the way you say certain things or do certain things. I'm not comfortable with it. So yeah, I've learned that th- definitely through the last eight years of being an entrepreneur.
1: Yeah. And it's fascinating. You know, it's not common to see a highly technical founder, right? You you essentially were a scientist, uh, put you know, in the spotlight to really perform. And, you know, you've had to do a lot of consumer education, right? That's, I think, part of the job that you accepted. Uh, What did it take for you to, I think you said this to me, and I always remember it, you know, Sarah, it took me a lot of work to get to be who I am today. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I mean, imagine a nerdy scientist in her lab coat who loves her music and her science and doesn't like people or doesn't like talking to people. That's exactly who I was. This was up until about 2012, 2013. Um, I was comfortable. I did not want to come out of my shell. I was the most introvert person that you would meet. I had probably five friends that I was extremely close to where I would be the most extrovert person. But then my first startup put me in a very uncomfortable spot. And because I started a news website, and that means I have to talk to people. I have to interview them. I have to chat with them. I have to smile. I have to be nice. I have to I have to raise funds for that company. And I realized, something: you just got to do it. You got to wake up every morning and do this. And I remember the first few events that I attended, I used to stand in the corner of that conference room and hope that nobody comes to me and talks. Like, you know, have my glass of wine or, or a drink in my hand. And I'm like, just don't come to me. You know, I don't feel like talking right now. And then I realized five events into it. I realized, this is not working. This is not the way you do it. You have to get out there. And then I went a complete opposite extreme where I went and spoke to everybody and just made a fool out of myself sometimes, but you know what? It's fine. Do that. I used to come back home and literally like cry saying, oh my God, I met so many people today. I'm so uncomfortable. But then I went back and did it the next day. So that was sort of the change that I needed to make. On starting Shiok Meets, in fact, when we first started, I wanted it to be a stealth startup because we won't have a product. You know, we're still working out the technology. We don't know whether it'll be a success. But then I realized who's going to fund a stealth startup. Often entrepreneur, CEO, who's a scientist by background, who doesn't have a track record of raising millions. Um, You know, there is, first of all, a very novel technology that no investor actually knows about. First um, cultivated company in Singapore, Southeast Asia. So who's going to even know that we are existing? So I had to go the complete opposite and do so much PR and press, even though I was so uncomfortable because the product was a good five years away. When I first launched it, but then, you know, you sort of move that target a little bit, but it is science. It is technology. Sometimes you take it and you you sort of move it. But yeah, I had to do that. And honestly, I would say that today, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't be able to raise the 30 million. I wouldn't be able to hire the 50 member team that I have right now. I wouldn't have been able to form the partnerships that I formed with the larger food companies and so on. So I'm glad I did it, uh, but it has been quite an experience doing it.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and I think that you know what you said that is really fascinating. In that, a lot of entrepreneurs have struggle actually with imposter syndrome, right? <laughs> because you're selling a vision. Really, you don't know if it will come true, but you believe in it. Uh, but with moving timelines, you know that worries me a little bit. I think with with the technology that you're putting, um, you know, forward into the world. What do you think will be sort of the biggest roadblock in making sure this product arrives on time?
0: Yeah, actually, the moving timelines in our case has been due to regulatory more than anything else. So it has been because the regulatory has been pretty slow, which is sort of expected. It is a novel product. Um, The second reason has been because of scale and the issues that we came across with scale. And I'm openly talking about it because... You know, our technology works great in the lab at the R and D scale where you're producing a couple of grams of meat or seafood, and then you want to produce a couple of, let's say, a 50 kilogram, and then you come across an issue that you never expected to come across. It's much like, you know, you can make soup for four people, but you make it for 40 people. The first time you make it, you are either going to add too much salt or too less salt. You know, that sort of a thing. You know, so it's it, I sort of equated to cooking, but that's exactly what we faced as well last year. So we had to move our timelines. We went back and spoke to our investors openly and we told them, hey guys, we have hit these technical challenges. We are solving it, which means our timelines have moved by six months, which means we can't submit regulatory last year. We'll submit it this year, which means we can't commercialize in 2023. We'll commercialize in 2024 instead. So I'm glad that in the last six months, we have sorted that issue that we came across. We are very close to submitting to regulatory. And it's it's about being honest. It's biology at the end of the day. It's not a software program where you can just go back and recode it and sort of figure it out. It's biology. Cells need to grow. Cells take a couple of months to grow. So you can't really go back and say, in a month, I'll tell you how to sort this. I'll say, I need a quarter to sort this because it's biology. So I think, yes, moving timelines are an issue for an entrepreneur and the industry and the investors, but it's also keeping it honest, keeping it open and saying these are the challenges that you're faced and this is what you're really looking for.
1: Now hold that thought. Talking to Loud, hosted by Chris Savage, is brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. On this podcast, Chris Savage, Wistia, CEO and loudest talker, takes you inside the minds of entrepreneurs as they share the hilarious, informative, and most challenging aspects of building more human brands. Everything we love here at Billion Dollar Moose. Now, an episode I loved recently was the one with guest Joe LeMay, Jiu Jitsu living entrepreneur and co-founder of Rocketbook. He talks about how an airplane epiphany took him on a wild ride that started with a Shark Tank flop, but ended with a $50 million exit. You know that's our jam. Listen to it, talking too loud wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you also chose uh, food, right? Where it's dealing with a human body. Yes. So it's extremely challenging to to meet the necessary standards. And you're also trying to scale uh, globally with, uh, you know, starting in Asia. But of course, again, different countries, different regulations, which is very different compared to, I don't know, Clubhouse. You can issue version one and then update the software later. But this is going into a human body.
0: Yes. So I'd rather take some time to do it right and launch the product that's 100% safe, 100% delicious, tasty, and sustainable at the end of the day when you launch it. Absolutely. Well, uh, Sandhya, we've covered a lot of
1: ground and in a short time frame, um, now we go into billion dollar questions. I'm excited for what you will do, but I'm also excited for these quick questions that I was truly curious about with your journey. Hardest lesson that you had to learn?
0: The hardest lesson I had to learn is um, how to keep a straight face when somebody is just, for lack of a better word, bashing you on your face. How to keep it straight mm. and not react immediately. What keeps you up at night still? Scale. Scale how to reach that multi ton, multi million ton that we have to produce.
1: What's the biggest insecurity that you have?
0: Uh, the moving timelines. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm sorry I picked on that. Um, Guilty pleasure that you have in life that you love and continues to make your life better.
0: Travel. Travel any time of the day. Yeah.
1: What sort of habit do you have that you think um, has made you really successful?
0: Uh, Organization and structure and keeping to time for everything. What was your first job? My first job was a clothing store in India where I folded clothes that the consumers tried on. Mm, Your worst job? Worst job (laughs) um, was a publishing company where I was sort of an editor and I had to sort of edit scientific papers. Just hated it, not for the job, but just for the ambience in the office. I quit in two days.
1: Wow. What's a book that has made an impact on your life?
0: A couple of books, actually, uh, but I think, you know, I I can't think of the top of my head, but I have recently started, for the last couple of years, started enjoying a lot of, like, the biographies and autobiographies of people, successful or even failed people, actually, to learn a lot.
1: So who's your favorite uh, biography that comes to mind?
0: Ah, okay. This is a question that sort of, I'm trying to find the name, but... (laughs) I found Elon Musk's book
1: quite intriguing. Hmm. I'll have to read that. I haven't actually. (laughs) What
0: are you watching
1: on Netflix or any streaming service that you're tuning into?
0: I'm recently binging on Ginny and Georgia.
1: (laughs) Oh, Ginny and Georgia.
0: (laughs) Very Alabama, Boston, US.
1: (laughs) Love it. Love it. And finally, uh, what will your legacy be?
0: I want my legacy to be that... um, you know, biotech and innovation can make something better for the environment and for everybody out there. I think that's what I want the legacy to be.
1: Good. And with that, you know, we are hopeful that you will continue to push the product out and that it will, you know, reach this, the shores that it deserves and the mouths that it deserves to uh, make the world a better place.
0: Great. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah.
1: And thanks so much for tuning in this week. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow our socials on Sarah Chen Global to get the latest on the show. It would really help me out too if you enjoyed this to rate and review our show on Apple Podcasts and share your favorite episodes with a friend. I'm Sarah Chen Spellings and you've been listening to Billion Dollar Moves.